This morning, I am going to take a detour from my current series on confronting the culture. And of course, as you know, that we've hosted the, uh, the Shepherds Conference this past week. And so over the past few weeks, I have been rather consumed with preparing for the two messages that I gave. And I thank you all for your prayers for that. But because I was so consumed with the preparation, I feel this irresistible compulsion to share with you the fruit of at least some of that study. Uh, particularly from the seminar session that I gave on the doctrine of the Trinity. So if any of you were at that session, you could probably still make the main service and or another fellowship group is, is available. But some of you who I've recognized were in my session have brought your wives. And so uh, you can't escape because now your wife can hear the seminar. The, the QR code uh, on the screens is a, a link to the notes that were from that session. And what I'm going to do this morning is a little bit scaled down. I, I went significantly over time, as I, I do. People here normally are like, well, what's, the, what's new with that? But I went like 80 minutes then. So I won't do that to you this morning. So it's a little bit scaled down. So the notes don't match perfectly, but I, I think that it, it might be easier for you to have something rather than nothing. Why am I saying that? Well, because I called the, I called the, the seminar Pursuing Unity on Triunity, aiming for clarity on the recent Trinity debates, and, th- and that, that's because there has been a lot of discussion and debate within Reformed evangelicalism recently over doctrinal matters related to the Trinity. That's come up even in Grace Life. Many of you have asked several questions during our Sunday morning Q&A sessions on some of those issues, uh, particularly the question of EFS, the Eternal Functional subordination of the Son. And while we have given brief answers in that Q&A format, it has long been my desire to take a Sunday in Grace Life and give a biblical evaluation of that issue. Now, not every one of you will be aware of the online furor and controversy uh, that has taken place around this issue, and that's okay. You are honestly better off for not following the Twitter debates, Twitter debates and uh, back and forths in the blogosphere on these issues. But you do need to be familiar with the doctrine of the Trinity, as well as with current teachings that subtly undermine the, the Trinity. And I'll confess, I'm a bit self-conscious giving this message on the week after Shepherd's Conference on the Sunday that we lose an hour of sleep. So I'm asking a lot from you, but the reality is this is what church is for, right? Church is for the preaching of sound doctrine, the exhorting in sound doctrine, instruction in the, the deep things of God, and the refutation of those who contradict sound teaching. And so I'm sort of preaching to myself a little bit, saying, don't worry about it, but but also to you to say this, and, and not only that, but that this is your God. Why do we do this? Because the triunity of God is at the heart of the Christian faith. There is no Christianity without the Trinity. Why? Because there is no Christianity without God, and the Trinity is who God is. I've quoted this to you before. I wonder if you remember it. It's from Herman Bovink. He writes, The entire Christian belief system, all of special revelation, stands or falls with the confession of God's Trinity. 
It is the core of the Christian faith, the root of all its dogmas, the basic content of the new covenant, the essence of the Christian religion itself. And then the Reformed theologian William G.T. Shedd said that Christianity, in the last analysis, is Trinitarianism. And yet, sadly, many professing Christians are content to remain ignorant of the most fundamental confession of the Christian faith, content to remain ignorant of their God, because it's difficult and it's mysterious and it makes my head hurt. And so a majority of believers are content to study the creation, but not the creator, to study salvation and hear sermons on salvation, but not on the Savior, to meditate on what God does rather than who God is. But we can never hope to rightly understand the creation apart from the Creator, salvation apart from the Savior. No one who treasures their salvation, no one treasures their salvation properly who doesn't discipline themselves to know their Savior. And the most fundamental truth that our God reveals about Himself is that He is triune, that there is one and only one God who subsists in three co-equal, co-eternal, consubstantial persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, the Trinity is a mystery. It presses us to the edges of our understanding. It even surpasses our understanding, beckoning us to humbly trust in order that we might understand. But it's worth it. It's worth it. One of the Dutch Puritans wrote, the entire spiritual life of a Christian consists in being exercised concerning this mystery. The entire Christian life consists in being exercised concerning this mystery. Augustine famously wrote, In no other subject is error more dangerous, or inquiry more laborious, or the discovery of truth more profitable than the Trinity. Yes, the inquiry is often laborious. But because the errors are so dangerous and because the discovery of the truth is so profitable, we must be willing to press one another toward a common understanding of these things, to unity on triunity. And on this subject, our unity cannot consist merely in charitable conversation and agreement to disagree. Well, we're unified because although our understanding might not be the same, we're happy to say that these are difficult matters and we can all get together and, you know, go do evangelism, right? No, on this subject, our unity must consist in the common confession of the truth. So, okay, what then is this EFS debate? Well, we all agree that as the incarnate Son, the man Christ Jesus submits to and obeys God the Father. I've come not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. I have glorified you, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. I received this commandment from my Father. The question is, does that submission and obedience extend back to eternity past, even before the Son took on a human nature? 
In other words, is part of what it means to be son his submission or subordination to the father? And those who answer yes to those questions are careful to note that they do not intend to say that the son is subordinate to the father in essence. That would be unequivocal, genuine, 80 proof, 100 proof heresy. Subordinationism, Arianism. But they say instead that he is, while being ontologically equal, right, of the same nature, that the son is functionally subordinate to the father in his role as son. And so eternal functional subordination, EFS. Another way to say it is to ask, are there eternal relations of authority and submission within the inner life of the Trinity? You say, why is that even a question? Well, for many years, otherwise sound teachers used this doctrine of eternal functional subordination as a defense of the biblical doctrine of complementarianism, which is the doctrine that there are distinct roles of headship and submission for men and women in the home and in the church. And of course, that's true. But the argument that they were giving for it goes something like this. Well, submission in marriage is no indication of a woman's inferiority because the son is eternally functionally subordinate to the father and is in no way inferior to the father in his nature. And so also a husband and wife are equal in nature, equally human, and yet there is a subordination of roles. Now, while not rejecting complementarianism, other teachers heard that argument as it was articulated again most recently. It was uh, what happened. It was at the, uh, the pre-conference of the 2016 Together for the Gospel conference. And, and other teachers objected that such argumentation is contrary to Trinitarian orthodoxy. And when that happened, the blogosphere erupted. Mountains of blog posts were written. Articles were published. Between now and then, even whole books have been written that have pressed us to consider what implications this debate has for the Trinity. We agree that there is headship and submission in marriage. We agree that men and women are equals before God. We agree that there is a diversity of role. But we disagree that that argument is a good reason for that teaching. And almost seven years later, it seems like it's every other week that a seminary student or an interested church member asks me about what I think about EFS. So I wanted to spend the rest of our time together this morning persuading you to reject the doctrine of the eternal submission of the Son. And I'll aim to do that in four parts. First, I'll make a brief comment on methodology. Scripture, tradition, what are we talking about here? Second, I'll address how a proper understanding of metaphysics guides us in this discussion. And don't get scared by that word. You'll see it's not as scary as it sounds. Third, I'll get into the EFS debate proper. And then fourth, I'll respond to a few objections. So in the first place, it is necessary to begin with a word about methodology. We must begin by saying that Scripture alone is the sole infallible authority on all matters of Christian doctrine. 
The Bible reigns as the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and by which all creeds and confessions, all the church fathers and all the teachers throughout church history are to be examined. And so we believe that Jesus is the eternal word become flesh, John chapter 1. He is the word that was in the beginning with God. And so he is distinct from the Father. He was with him. And yet that word was God. And so he is fully God himself. And then along with the Father, the Son subsists in the undivided divine essence. Colossians 2.9 says, All the fullness of deity dwells in him. This word, become flesh, is John 1.18 the only begotten God, eternally begotten from the Father's essence. John 1.18, the only begotten God, doesn't mean he was the only person of the Godhead to become incarnate and begotten in, a, in Mary's womb. That begetting language, and we'll see more of it later on, is, is speaking the same truth that the Nicene Creed speaks when it says that Jesus is God of God, light of light. What, what is that talking about? So that it's the, it's the idea that all that the Father is, the Son is, and yet the Son is from the Father in this eternal mystery called eternal generation, eternal begetting. But the point is, I just read you John 1, 1, John 1, 14, Colossians 2, 9, John 1, 18. These are biblical doctrines. We do not believe any doctrine simply because it was codified in a creed or taught by a preferred theologian. We believe the theology we believe because we, we believe we have been convinced that such doctrine is biblical, that it is, as the Westminster Confession puts it, either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. But notice what I've said there. Either expressly set down or by good and necessary consequence deduced. What Scripture implies is no less true than what Scripture expressly states. In other words, the logical implications of a divinely real, revealed truth are no less divinely revealed and no less true than the scriptural principle from which it's deduced. Or, said still another way, from truth follows nothing but truth. If A is proven to be a scriptural truth, and if the rest of biblical testimony, along with the laws of logic, demand that A implies B, and B implies C, and C implies D, and on so through to Z, well then Z is no less biblical than A. What is deduced by good and necessary consequence is no less biblical than that which is expressly set down in Scripture, provided that it is genuinely a good and necessary consequence. And that is where the locus of this particular debate seems to be. It's not a disagreement that the biblical text says the Son is of the same nature as the Father. 
It's a disagreement about what the implications of the son's consubstantiality with the father are and what those implications cannot be. Whether it's possible that eternal submission can be spoken of two persons subsisting in the identical divine nature. And so people can get impatient because it seems far afield from the biblical text, but it's not. It's just deeper into it. It's simply following along from it. It's given what the text says, given what we agree the text says, what follows and what doesn't follow. Now, even there, I just spoke of the phrase persons subsisting in a nature. That leads me to a second preliminary comment. If the previous was about methodology, this one is about metaphysics. And metaphysics is simply the study of the nature of being, the nature of personhood, the nature of existence, and so on. You know, physics, nature, right? Phusis from the Greek word phusis. And met- metaphysics is, you know, you know how like uh, metalinguistics is speaking language about language and metacognition is thinking about thinking. Well, metaphysics is the nature of natures, right? What is a person? That's a question that I, that I have for you this morning. You tell me, what is a person? What is a nature? Isn't it weird that we kind of get put back on our heels by such questions? What is a person and what is a nature? Given that we all believe that the cardinal confessions of the Christian faith are that we worship a God, the only true God, who is three persons subsisting in one nature, and that Christ, our Savior, is one person subsisting in two natures, the fact that that's, those are the cardinal confessions of our faith, and when somebody asks us, hey, what's a person and what's a nature, we kind of don't know. We're not quite sure how to answer that. Which means, at the most basic level, you are interested in those definitions in metaphysics. If you can't be a Christian without confessing three persons in one nature and one person in two natures, then the definitions of person and nature are of paramount importance in the Christian life. And that means every Christian, just like he must be a theologian, must be a metaphysician. Now, the simplest way to summarize how the Bible conceives of person and nature is like this. A person is a who, and a nature is a what. A person is a subject, someone who acts, and a nature is that by which a person acts, a set of equipment employed by a person to carry out the actions he performs. While a person is a who, a nature is a what. And that means, incidentally, that natures do not act or experience. Persons act or experience according to or by virtue of their natures. Now, by and large, the historic Christian tradition subscribed to this who versus what understanding of person and nature. It soon became standard to define a person as, quote, an individual substance of a rational nature. A person is an individual who, who subsists in a what that is at the very least rational. That definition is, is representative of the Trinitarian and Christological thought of the pro-Nicene fathers, those 
wonderful men who gave their lives, who were exiled, who, who f- just argued for 50 years, as, as many years as the Lord would give him. And, and then, of course, passing the baton to the next guy who would argue for 50 years and, all, and, and gave us these formulations that we confess, one nature, three persons. And this understanding that, that they all shared held sway from the three, four, five hundreds all the way through to the Middle Ages through to the Reformation period and was codified in the writings of post-Reformed theologians that we all regard as our heroes, John Owen, Francis Turretin, and such. But during the Enlightenment of the late 17th and early 18th centuries, humanistic rationalism rejected Christianity. They rejected the Trinity. One God, three persons. How is that not three gods? And that... uh, That's just all religious fantasy. We have evolved. We have come into the age of reason. These things don't make any sense. And neither does a virgin birth. Neither does miracles and water into wine. Neither does bodily resurrection. Out with all of it. And along with Christian truths, the Trinity, the Enlightenment rationalists rejected the historic Christian definitions of person and nature. And when rationalist metaphysics combined with secular psychology, personhood became confused with personality. And you see it even in the literature to to this day. People use the term personality the way that we've always used the term personhood. But then others use the term personality the way that we use personality. What do you think of when we hear personality today? Well, we think of what a person is like. Oh, I like that guy's personality. He's very outgoing. He's very funny and engaging, right? This is what he's like. This is the set of traits or characteristics that define what kind of person he is. But what does that sound like but the very thing that the, the Christian tradition had always defined as nature, a, a set of traits or characteristics that define what a person is like. And rather than rejecting that shift outright, professing Christian apologists of the time compromised with the world. They were terrified that no enlightened unbeliever would ever take the claims of Christianity seriously if it didn't deal with this new metaphysics and new epistemology on its own terms. And so they adopted the Enlightenment's redefinitions to show that Christianity can still prove reasonable even on unbelievers' presuppositions. And, and so many ideas came from that. Theistic evolution came from that. Immanuel Kant's distinction between the phenomenal and the noumenal realms came from that. Historical criticism came from that. We can adopt your presuppositions and still, still beat you. That might be true, but that move is unfaithful, right? Because we don't adopt the unbeliever's worldview to show them that their worldview is wrong, <laughs> We don't pretend that the truth is false for the sake of argument. We always presuppose that truth is true. Now, by the late 19th century, the definitional shift from person to personality, the shift from that defining person as nature, began to bear rotten fruit in Christian theology. Theologians began to conceive the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, as a society of personalities, Not three who's subsisting in a single what, but three centers of consciousness 
each with their own mind, their own will, their own agency, performing their own discrete operations by virtue of their distinct personhood. That's just what person means, right? Personality. But the ancients would have heard the concepts of consciousness, mind, will, agency, and they would have said, these are all the properties that constitute a nature. This is the set of equipment or characteristics that make a thing what it is, not a person who he is. Can you see what a disaster that makes for Christian theology? A theology whose cardinal confessions hinge on precise definitions of person and nature. After the Enlightenment, you had professing Christian theologians who affirmed the ancient formulas of three persons in one nature and one person in two natures, but who had been duped into redefining person and nature in such a way that would have been unrecognizable to the very men that gave us those formulations. I would argue that your confession of those formulas, one nature, three persons, doctrine of the Trinity, I'm a Trinitarian, is meaningless if what you mean by person and nature are opposite or at the very least not what those men define them as. If, that, if, they, if it's not what they meant by the terms, then confessing the same formula doesn't mean the same thing, does it? You could mean the opposite of what they meant and have embraced the very thing that their opponents embraced. So that redefined, unbelieving, enlightenment metaphysic continued to hold sway in most conservative theological circles through the 19th and 20th centuries. In fact, many pastors and scholars have been trained as if the post-enlightenment evangelical doctrine of God was historic Christianity rather than a departure from historic Christianity. And so many of us don't know any different. It's the, the theological air we've breathed from the beginning of our lives to think of the three persons as if they were three personalities with distinct minds and distinct wills and distinct agencies. Yeah, they cooperate and they're in harmony, but they're, they're working by distinct principles of action by virtue of their personhood. And it's so upside down that when you ask people to consider reflecting on whether their understanding of person and nature cohere with the biblical and historical Christian teaching, it feels almost sacrilegious to them. It feels like you're, you're asking them to depart from historic Christianity when really what you're asking them to do is to embrace historic Christianity. Asking folks to embrace orthodoxy feels to them like you're asking them to embrace heresy because they've inverted person and nature. But lately, several theologians began to recognize that this shift had taken place and they've sought to recover the historic Christian teaching on this person-nature distinction. And so to disentangle the Enlightenment rationalism from Trinitarian theology. And the point is, for all of our protestations that we believe in three persons in one nature and two natures in one person, we need to stop and ask ourselves whether we're using definitions of person and nature that would have been unrecognizable to, the Orthodox, to Orthodox Christian theology before the 18th century. And many of us in conservative evangelicalism are not. And properly defining person and nature makes all the difference in the EFS debate, which we'll turn to now. Does the Son submit to the Father from eternity? 
even before the incarnation? Are there eternal relations of authority and submission within the inner life of the Trinity? I answer no to that question. Why? All right, here's the argument up front. Because submission is the subjection of one will to another will, and therefore it requires multiple faculties of will. And because multiple faculties of will require multiple natures, since will is a property of nature, not person. And there's only one nature in the Godhead. Now, I've got to prove that to you, but that's the argument. Now, the reason the incarnate Son can submit to and obey the Father, which, again, everyone grants, is because He's assumed a human nature, and thus a human will into personal union with His divine nature. Before He assumed a human nature in the incarnation, there is no subjection of the Son's will to the Father's will because they have the identical self-same will. Eternal submission would therefore threaten the consubstantiality, the one natureness of the Father and the Son, the oneness of God's nature. Now, as I said, that argument depends on the truthfulness of its key premises, namely that submission requires two faculties of will and that will is a faculty properly predicated of a nature and not a person. How in the world could we ever go about proving the validity of those two premises? Well, like this. First, let's consider the definition of submission. It, it seems tautological, to me anyway, to say that submission entails the subjection of one will to another will. That is just what submission is. If I submit to you, I bring my own will into subjection to your will. What I want is placed under, it is submitted and governed by what you want. And so the Oxford English Dictionary defines submission as the action of accepting or yielding to a superior force or to the will or authority of another person. And the leading Greek dictionary's entries for the New Testament words for submit and submission are consistent with that. And so I believe it is rather inescapable for me to submit to someone is to subject my will to their will. And therefore, submission requires multiple faculties of will, multiple things by which we want what we want. And in the almost seven years this debate has been raging, no one has offered a compelling argument for why that's not the case, for why that's a misunderstanding of submission or why we should, we should be able to submit with one will or anything like that. So you say, okay, so submission requires multiple wills. Why does that matter? Well, since will is a property of nature and not person, there is only, and there's only one nature in the Godhead, there can only be one faculty for willing in the Godhead, which makes submission impossible. Now you say, but how do we know that will is a property of nature and not of person? If will is a property of person, then each person of the Trinity can have his own distinct will, and submission makes total sense. Well, the way that we can discern whether will is a property of nature or person is to consider the incarnate Christ. Jesus is one person subsisting in two natures, divine and human. He's the only other being in the world that that's like that for. You and me, one person, one nature. 
the Godhead, one nature, three persons. Jesus, one person, two natures. He's not two persons like the Nestorians taught, nor does he have just one nature, whether that nature is divine, human, or some mix of the two. That's what the Monophysites and the Eutychians of the 4th century and 5th century taught. He is, as the Council of Chalcedon has put it, one and the same Christ, acknowledged in two natures, both concurring into one person. Now, if will were a property of person and not nature, we would expect Christ, who is one person, to have how many wills? If will goes with person and Christ is one person, how many wills does he have? One. If will were a property of nature and not a person, we would expect that Christ, who has two natures, to have two wills. So, which is it? Does the incarnate Christ have one will or two? Well, that question was first hashed out in earnest in the events leading up to what is called the Third Council of Constantinople in A.D. 680 and 681. It has been dubbed the Monothelite Controversy. And the spelling of that is in your notes. Monos, one, Thelema, will, monothelite, right? One will. And they said Christ only had his one divine will the divine will that he possessed from all eternity. The ones who said that he had two wills, one divine and one human, were called diophilites from duo, the Greek word for two. So the council concluded that Christ had to have both a divine will and a human will. The key figure in this debate was a man named Maximus the Confessor, which is a cool name. He, he famously argued the Diophilite case by appealing to the fourth century Cappadocian father, Gregory of Nazianzus. And in particular, something that Gregory of Nazianzus said that has become a maxim of Trinitarian theology for all of church history. It's this phrase you should memorize. That which is not assumed is not healed. And by assumed, he doesn't mean, you know, receive without evidence. It means to take on. That which Christ did not assume, he did not heal. Christ is our Savior by his substitutionary saving work. He saves us by taking on a full and true human nature so that he is genuinely, quote, consubstantial with us according to the manhood, as Chalcedon says, able to stand in man's place as a genuine man, representing us in every way. When the Cappadocian fathers argued against Apollinarius, the heretic Apollinarius, who taught that Christ assumed a human body, but not a rational soul as well, the Cappadocians argued that if there was an aspect of humanity that Christ failed to assume to himself, then that aspect of humanity was not healed in his substitutionary saving work. If Christ was going to heal the human will, along with the rest of human nature, he must have assumed a human will in his incarnation. And besides that, if Christ didn't assume a human will in his incarnation, like the Monophilites contended, not only is our depraved will unsavable, but it's difficult to argue convincingly that Christ was and is genuinely human. Genuine humans have human wills. They make choices human choices by virtue of their human wills. Are you really human if you don't have a human will by which you make human choices? Well, if not, 
then Christ must have had a human will. Otherwise, he wasn't genuinely human. And besides all that, the whole point of the incarnation was that our penalty had to be paid by a man like us and that his obedience, which would be credited to us as righteousness, had to be the obedience of a man like us. If Christ, as the last Adam, cannot choose as a man to walk in obedience to God's law precisely in the way the first Adam had failed, then he cannot stand in our place as our substitute and accomplish our justification as our federal head like Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 says he does. So you see, monothelitism isn't just an arcane, dark ages dispute about a meaningless point of doctrine. It undermines the genuine humanity of Christ altogether. And that was the Third Council of Constantinople's conclusion as well. Monothelitism was condemned as heresy, and diothelitism was established as the orthodox teaching of the church. Now, follow me. If Christ assumed a human will, which he must have done for the sake of our salvation, then he had two wills, both divine and human. I mean, unless you're going to say he lost the divine will in the incarnation. But what do you have there? You have change in the Godhead. You have mutability in the Godhead. That can't happen. And so since Christ is one person with two natures and he's got two wills, it's fitting to conclude that will is a a faculty properly predicated of a nature and not a person. Christ's two wills match up with his two natures and they don't match up with his being a single person. If will were a property of person and not nature which incidentally is what both Arius and Apollinarius taught, right? The heretics taught that will belongs to person. But if will were a property of person, since Christ had two wills, we'd have expected Christ to be two persons, which of course he's not. Christ had two faculties of willing in accordance with his two natures, one divine and one human. And, and, you know, besides all of that, I would argue that most of us implicitly know that will is a property of nature and not of person. You say, wait, I already know that? (laughs) Listen, when we engage in the debate over the bondage and freedom of the will and man's depravity, we explain that apart from regenerating grace, man's will is free to make choices, but is not free to choose rightly, right? He can choose this or that. He's not an automaton unable to choose between alternatives, but he is depraved unable to choose righteousness. Fallen man has a will, but his will is bound to act in accordance with his what? With his nature. See, even without the monophylite controversy, we know that will is a property of nature. So, Since the Godhead is three persons fully subsisting in the single, undivided, divine nature, and since will is a predicate of nature and not of person, there are not three faculties of will in the Godhead by virtue of the three persons. Instead, there is one faculty of will in the Godhead by virtue of the one nature. So consubstantial persons, that is to say persons who exist in the self-same, numerically identical nature, all will... By, the, by virtue of the self-same, numerically identical faculty of willing. And that means, by definition, that they cannot submit to one another. The single divine will can't be subjected or subordinated to itself. 
that wouldn't be submission. That would just be decision. If there's to be submission, there needs to be another faculty of will. And that faculty of will is added through the Son's incarnation. Since the incarnate Son takes on a human nature alongside and into personal union with His divine nature, He also takes on a human will as part of the machinery of that human nature. Now, this one person, this God-man, Christ Jesus, subsists in two natures, the hypostatic union. Therefore, he has two faculties of will. And now, with the hardware needed for submission, he can now subject his human will to the divine will and say things like, John 6, 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And Luke twenty two forty two, 42, not my will, but yours be done. But before his incarnation in eternity, the Son subsisted only in the single undivided divine nature and therefore possessed only the one divine will. He couldn't subject his will to the Father's will because it was the very same identical faculty of willing. Now, if you reject that line of argumentation and you embrace EFS or ERAS, in my estimation, you got three choices you can choose from. One, you could embrace tritheism, three gods. You could rightly conclude that will is a property of nature, but wrongly insist that each person has his own faculty of willing, and that would make God three gods, three natures, and you'd have tritheism, and you'd upend the entire doctrine of the Trinity. Understandable why most don't choose that option. Don't choose that option. Second, you could embrace monothelitism, uh, which is to say you could wrongly conclude that will is a property of person and not nature, and so you could explain three wills in the Godhead by means of three persons. You'd avoid tritheism, but you'd be constrained to confirm that Jesus, because he's one person, had only one will. But which will would you grant to him? If he, if he has only a human will in the incarnation, what happened to the divine will that he had from all eternity? Did the divine son change from having a divine will into having a human will? Again, that upends divine immutability. If he has only a divine will but not a human will, well, then you've fatally undermined the genuine humanity of Christ and the gospel along with it as we've just gone through. If he has some sort of mix of the two, right, a divine human will or a theanthropic will because he's God-man, does he have a God-man will? Well, then he's got a third sort of will that is neither fully divine nor fully human. And so you get the problems from both of those positions because now he's changed and he doesn't have what we have. So you don't want to embrace monothelitism either. Now, third, you could embrace both monotheism, one God, and diothelitism, two wills in the incarnate Christ, but you could wrongly insist that will is a property of person and not nature. And then you'd have to explain why, if will is a property of person and Christ had two of them, he's not two persons. Then you're an historian. None of those alternatives, you see how interconnected all of this is. None of these alternatives is acceptable to the teaching of Scripture. Whether in, it's like whack-a-mole, right? You, if, you, if you have the wrong position, you, you beat down the, this one heresy, right? And the mole goes back into the hole, but then he pops up over here. And you're like, oh, uh, no, so, so, so I'm going I'm to embrace monothelitism. Oh, yeah, but you deny the humanity of Christ and, you know, lose the gospel. That's a, that's a big mole, right? <laughs> right? Oh, no, will's a property of, of nature, but, oh, but then you're, now, you're, now you're a tritheist. 
Will's a property of person, but there's two of them. Well, now Christ is, is two persons and you're Nestorian. You can't have it. You can't hold EFS and not have one mole up all the time. Now look, EFS, it, it's, it's heated because they're good brothers who hold to this position. You say, but how could they be good brothers? Well, because EFS is not of itself tritheism. It's not of itself monothelitism. There are inconsistent ways of remaining a Christian and getting this wrong. But if consistently held, this teaching entails heresy. It entails tritheism or monothelitism or, or, or more or both, right? Those who hold to it repudiate the heresies, but they can't do so consistently, at least not by any definition that would have been recognizable as historic Christian orthodoxy. And so if classical biblical Trinitarianism is to be consistently affirmed, EFS must be rejected. And, then, and some people, when they hear that, they say, okay, fine, professor, I'll just be inconsistent then, right? Well, I'm going to go with what, my Bible, what I think my Bible says, and I'll just, you can call me inconsistent if you want. Well, well, the problem with that is truth is rational, right? Truth is not rationalist. But rational, we, we're not rationalists. We, are not, we don't subscribe to rationalism. That is, we make the Bible bend to our understanding of reasoning. The, 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 the truth is sometimes supra-rational. One person, two natures. Three persons, one nature. That's above our finite ability to understand. But what truth is never is irrational. And so we don't say, well, it sounds like a contradiction and I can't really explain it, but I just accept it. No, because you know what happens? sooner or later, you wind up agreeing with yourself. You wind up pressing those matters that you must be inconsistent on to be saved, and you start getting consistent on them. The best minds do this. I've quoted in my seminar, one of the, one, another uh, theology professor tries this, and he makes a comment at the beginning of a paper, and he says, I want to confess X, right? And then by the end of the paper, he says, so we, we see we have to confess not X, and I could explain that to you, but take a while. He's, he's, trying, he's trying to say, I don't affirm this bad thing. And by the end of the paper, I affirm this bad thing. Why? Because he's being consistent. Sooner or later, our consistency catches up with us. And if it doesn't catch up with us, it'll catch up with our children or our students or our grandchildren and their students, right? So you have to be consistent. You have to. Now, in the nearly, se- oh, wow, we're, we're really close to the end. There are objections to this. In the nearly seven years that I've been talking with folks about this, I've I've heard a lot of objections along these lines, and I'd like to respond to them. Maybe I don't have enough time. I'll try to to go fast. I'll try to summarize. The first objection is that submission is inherent to sonship. Mike, isn't that just what it means to be a son, though? I mean, the Bible calls Jesus son, and so don't sons submit to their fathers? And isn't it what, me, what it means to be a father to exercise authority over your children? Isn't that just what Scripture means by calling the father the father and calling the son son? And the answer to those questions is no. Scripture never gives us any warrant for that kind of a conclusion. And interestingly, there, that has not been the answer of historic Christianity throughout the ages. From the post-apostolic period through to the early 18th century, the church virtually uniformly taught that calling the divine person Father, Son, and Spirit didn't speak of authority and submission. 
it spoke of what's called the eternal relations of origin or their modes of subsistence. In other words, the father is called father because he eternally begets the son. The son is called son is because he is eternally begotten from the father. The spirit is called spirit because he is eternally spirated, breathed forth from the father and the son. These are mysteries. These are beyond our eternal acts. What are, what, what are eternal acts, right? That, that it's beyond our, the ability of our mind to conceive. But this is how the historic Christ, Christian tradition has explained to us why the Father is not the Son. Because the Son is from the Father. The Father is not from the Son. The, the Spirit is from the Father and the Son and not vice versa. These are what distinguish the persons of the Trinity. The Father is, we say, ingenerate. He is of none. The Son is eternally generated. He is eternally from the Father. And the Spirit eternally proceeds. He is eternally from the Father and the Son. And I don't have time to do a full defense of that, but eternal generation is taught in passages like Psalm 2-7. You are my Son today, I have begotten you. John 5-26, where Jesus says, For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he gave to the Son to have life in himself. And you say, wait a second, having life in yourself sounds like something you just have in yourself and not something that's given to you. Right, that's the, this is the eternal mystery of it. To have life in oneself is to be ase, it's to be from oneself, it's to be entirely self-existent. And Jesus says, I got my self-existence from my Father. But then that's not self-existence, Jesus. Well, let me not correct him. <laughs> right? Let me decide that he knew what he was saying when he said that. That's a reference to the eternal communication of the whole fullness of the divine essence. So that the Son is different from the Father, distinct, I should say, from the Father, but is everything else that the Father is, aside from the one from whom he is. And you see that, that concept every time you see only begotten in, in the Scriptures. John 1.14, John 1.18, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. John 3.18 and 1 John 4.9. This is why the Nicene Creed calls the Son God of God and light of light. That's why the Nicene and Athanasian creeds say the Son is begotten, not created. This doctrine of eternal generation might seem far, foreign to us because it, we, we've just fallen so far from historic Trinitarianism. But it was an absolutely indispensable staple in the pro-Nicene case against the Arians. One Trinitarian scholar comments that, quote, eternal generation is a central feature of pro-Nicene theology, both Latin and Greek. And so both the Eastern Church and the Western Church were united in arguing for the Son's full deity by virtue of this doctrine called eternal generation. And interestingly, it wasn't until the doctrines of eternal generation and eternal procession began to be dismissed, because it's just overly speculative or overly philosophical, that they came up with eternal relations of authority and submission. Because if you get rid of eternal generation and eternal procession, what distinguishes the, the three persons from one another? Nothing. And so they had to invent these distinctions of authority and submission, right? So the Father is Father because He has authority, the Son is Son because He submits to the Father, and the Spirit is Spirit because He submits to the Father and the Son. That was absent from history until eternal generation and eternal uh, procession were rejected. 
You think about it. Just as I am human and I am not my son, but I have communicated the essence of humanity to my son in ordinary generation such that he is every human thing that I am but is not me, so also divine eternal generation is where the the father and the son, the father communicates the fullness of the divine essence to the son so that the son eternally becomes, note the very big air quotes there because the son never becomes anything, but eternally becomes distinct from the father and yet all that the father is. So eternal generation, what it means to be son is not to submit. It means to be from the father and equal to the father. Eternal son, yes, not eternal submission. All right, a second objection is that being sent implies subordination. Well, it says the father sent the son. First John 4, 14, we have seen and testify that the father has sent the son into, to be the savior of the world. And if the father sent the son, the father must be exercising authority over the son and the son must be responding submissively or obediently to the father's command. And since that happens before the incarnation, then before the son has a human will, there's authority and submission before uh, a second will. Now, interestingly, that same argument is employed by Ari, the, the semi-Arians to argue for the son's inferiority to the father in the fourth century. And so just as a warning, right, if you start arguing similarly to the semi-Arians, to the heretics of history, like red flags, right? Okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to back away from that deduction because now I'm arguing like Arius' students and not like Athanasius' students, right? Not Augustine's students, not orthodox, but heretical. So number one, red flag. Number two, Augustine encountered this argument. How did he answer it? Well, again, by, not, not, by appealing not to submission and subordination, but to fromness, eternal generation once again. Augustine writes this, not because one is greater and the other less, or we could say not because one is authoritative and the other submissive, but because one is the father and the other is the son. One is the begetter, the other begotten. The first is the one from whom the sent one is. The other is the one who is from the sender. Augustine is saying that the eternal divine processions, eternal generation, ground and direct and shape the temporal divine missions. The Son is sent from the Father in time by, because by virtue of eternal generation, the Son is from the Father from all eternity. And then he, he goes on to do something even, even, I think, even cooler. I wonder if I have time to express it to you. Well, here's what he, we'll, we'll give it a shot, and if you start walking out, we'll know where your heart is. Um, <laughs> He goes on to argue that being sent doesn't imply submission by virtue of another fundamental axiom of pro-Nicene Trinitarianism, and that's what's called the doctrine of inseparable operations, which sounds big, but is just teaching that because the three persons of the Trinity each act according to the identical principle of action, namely the divine nature, and because that divine nature can never be divided, well, therefore, neither can the divine works be divided. Every external act that God performs is worked by all three persons of the Trinity. When, when Scripture talks about one act being the Father's action, it doesn't mean to exclude the Son and the Spirit from that. You say, what do you mean? Well, the Father created the world 
1 Corinthians 8, 6, the Father is the one from whom are all things. But Colossians 1, 16 says, by him, that is by the Son, all things were created. John 1, 3, all things have come into being through him, through the word. And Job 33, 4 says, the Spirit of God has made me, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So the Father created the world, the Son created the world, the Spirit created the world, and yet there aren't three worlds. There's only one creation. There are three who create, but there's only one act of creation. And that's not like, well, the Father says, okay, I'll get this thing going. All right, Son, you take it from here, and then Spirit, you slam it home. <laughs> no. By the word of the Lord, the heavens are made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Word, son, breath, spirit. Say, who raised Jesus from the dead? The Father furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead, Acts 17, 31. But wait a second. Jesus says, destroy this temple. Three days, I'll raise it up. And, and then the spirit, it's Romans 8, 11 says, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. So the father raised the son, the son raised the son, the spirit raised the son, but the son only rose one time. Three who resurrect, but not three resurrections, only one inseparable act of resurrection. You say, why does that matter? The point is when scripture says that the father sent the son into the world, we are not to imagine that the son himself or the spirit is excluded from that act of sending. And Augustine illustrates that brilliantly, and I don't care if I don't have time, this is worth it. Because listen to this. Augustine says, in what manner did God send his son? So you picture the scene, the, the father, I mean, the way that the other guys would say, it's the father saying, son, get over here, you're going to earth, right? Augustine says, did he tell the son to come, giving him an order he complied with? Or did he ask him to, son, would you please? Or did he merely suggest it? Hey, we, we might be, we might, this might be a good idea. Well, Augustine says, whichever way it was done, it was certainly done by word, right? The father would have had to say that to the son. And then Augustine says, but God's word is his son. So when the father sent him by word, this is still Augustine, what happened was that he was sent by the father and the father's word. Hence, it is by the Father and the Son that the Son was sent because the Son is the Father's Word. That's what these guys were exercised with for centuries while we sit here and watch Netflix for eight hours. <laughs> Those gems don't yield themselves to shallow rakers across the surface of Scripture. They, live, they, they, they yield themselves to the ones who dig deep and penetrate and meditate and pray and study and beg God to reveal Himself. That's a brilliant illustration of inseparable operations. We can't imagine that the, the father is authoritatively commanding the son by virtue of an authority that the son doesn't share. The son himself is the very word of the father, the very means of expressing his authority. And so the way Augustine and the Nicene fathers answered this objection was to say sending isn't an exercise of authority. It's simply the father acting inseparably in redemption according to his internal personal property, his begetting, he's being the eternal begetter of the son. The son who, be, the, sorry, the one who begets the son eternally sends the son in time. The one who is from the father eternally is sent from the father in time. And so that objection doesn't work either. And then lastly, there's just some texts that often get pressed into service 
as saying, you know, there are texts that say the son is submitting to the father. Like, like I've not come down from heaven to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, or the father is greater than I, or I do exactly as the father commanded me. But, but the problem with appealing to those texts is those are all speaking of Jesus as the incarnate son. And nobody disagrees that the incarnate son submits to the father by virtue of his human will, which you would need as a verse that speaks of the eternal son in eternity past submitting to the father. And we don't have one. They say, well, what about 1 Corinthians 15, 28? It says in eternity future, the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjects all things to him, namely the father. And, but we don't have any problem with everlasting functional subordination because the Son is everlastingly incarnate. Colossians 2.9, Paul writing in the 60s AD, well after the resurrection, right, and ascension, all, in him all the fullness of deity dwells, present tense, in bodily form, in bodily form. So the Son is forever incarnate, and he, he may be everlastingly subject to the Father according to his human nature because he subsists everlastingly in a human nature alongside the divine, which is, by the way, an area ripe for meditation. I don't know that I would have agreed to step, to adding the weakness of humanity to my divine nature if it meant that I was going to do it forever and ever and ever. But, and, it's, and it's just glorious. We have, there's a, there's a God in heaven who shares our nature. The king of the universe fills that throne with our nature. And it reminds us that, of course, that, that he being the first fruits of the resurrection of the body, that we await a, a bodily resurrection. And then one last one, 1 Corinthians eleven three, Paul says, Christ is the head of every man. Man is the head of a woman. God is the head of Christ. And you see where they're going with that. But the problem is they're reading the last phrase as if it said the father is the head of the son, as if headship and the corresponding submission were inherent to fatherhood and sonship. But Paul says God is the head of Christ. And he uses the title Messiah, the anointed one, which can only describe the son as he is the son of David, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, the man, Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and man who is both God and man. To say that God is the head of Christ is simply to say that the incarnate Son is subject to God the Father by virtue of his humanity, which again, no one objects to. And so when all the texts are interpreted in their context, and in light of the consubstantiality of the Father and the eternal Son, as well as in light of the incarnation of the eternal Son, none of them constrain the student of Scripture to posit eternal relations of authority and submission. So we are out of time, exhausted, and asking, does all this really matter? Yes, it really matters because this is who our God is and isn't. We exist to know God and he has revealed himself as three in one. And therefore, whenever there is a threat to that triunity, the people of God must rise and refute that error according to biblical truth, even if they're our friends and even if they're mostly sound on other things, almost especially if they're mostly sound on other things. Because who does the most damage but those we trust most? It's not as if everyone who is uncertain about this or confused by this is not a Christian. Not at all. These are difficult matters. But it's also not as if it's a matter of no consequence. Just an, another point of minutia where we can agree to disagree. No, we must come to a common confession here. And I'll close with the words of the Athanasian Creed. In this trinity, none is a for or after another. 
None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. Father, we do thank you for your grace to us in Christ, given to us by your Spirit. We praise the triune God, and we pray that you would continue to press and mold us into greater understandings of your triunity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Guide us and guard us from being amiss in this most dangerous and most lovely and glorious field of divine truth. May it be that we are pressed further uh, further into worship of you and into searching out your being, your limitless, Im- infinite being from this study. And we do pray that you would protect us from error so that you might be worshiped rightly as you are worthy of. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.